Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Moms Podcast. We're having candid conversations and answering difficult questions about pregnancy, raising kids, and everything mom-related. I'm Dr. Angela Mackey, and I'm a mom of two and a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota. And my co-host is Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi, who's a pediatric infectious disease doctor, also at Mayo Clinic, and is also pregnant. On this episode, we're talking about preparing for delivery. Should you have a birth plan? Do birth plans even matter? Because we all know babies and delivery is gonna go how it's gonna go. And we maybe don't have as much control about it as we actually think we do. And what do obstetricians really think of birth plans? How should you control pain? What about, how do you choose who's gonna deliver your baby? Do you consider an obstetrician, um, a midwife, a doula um, being present during that delivery? And what about delayed cord clamping? Have you heard about that? You, if you haven't, you should. And what about a pre-planned C-section? What should you pack in your go bag? So we have a lot to cover in this episode, so I think we should just dive right in. Um, we're joined again um, by our special guest, Dr. Myra Wick, who is an obstetrician, gynecologist, and a medical geneticist at Mayo Clinic. And she has some serious street credibility, everyone, because she is the medical editor of Mayo Clinic Guide to a Healthy Pregnancy. Dr. Wick, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me, it's a pleasure. You know, I'm really interested to hear uh, what you think about birth plans. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But let's start by talking about where, um, you know, you should deliver. So hospitals, birthing centers, there's lots of different options. I myself chose a hospital um, because uh, during my pediatric residency, I learned that Obstetrics and delivery is probably 90%, you know, routine, sort of boring, and then 10% sheer terror. When everything goes wrong, that can go wrong, and I decided that I wanted to be in a hospital where there were neonatologists and neonatal nurse practitioners and respiratory therapists and skilled nursing staff and obstetricians and anesthesiologists and everyone present who needed to be present if something was going wrong with my baby, because I wanted to make sure that my baby had the best chance of having a smooth delivery and doing well, and thankfully, uh, I chose a hospital and neither of my deliveries went according to plan and it was sheer terror, um, I think for everyone involved in the room. So um, Nipuni, have you decided where you're gonna be delivering? Yeah, Angie, so kind of for the same reasons that you outlined, uh, we're definitely planning to deliver in, in a hospital. Um, I think we wanna be somewhere that we know that all the, the backup is there. If it's needed, hopefully it won't be needed, um, but I think for peace of mind, that's uh, kind of what we've decided as well. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Wick, I think, you know, there's some, like, maybe just, like, a little confusion um, about what is the difference between um, an obstetrician, a, a midwife, and a doula. Can you help us understand that a little bit? Sure. I'm just going to interject um, my own story. So we also chose to have our, our children in a hospital, and you you never do really know what's going to happen with our third child. After two vaginal deliveries with our third child, no anesthesia on board. I was going to do it, you know, all natural. Um, uh -huh. And um, there was an abruption, and I ended up with a crash C-section. So, yes. um, and I think it was probably m more scary for my husband than watching everything. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but anyway, so you, you never know. Even after, you know, two relatively routine deliveries, um, you don't know what's going to happen with, with the next one or 
or with a first or second. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, back to your question. Um, so a, an, an obstetrician gynecologist is a medical doctor. Um, and we have, we go to medical school for four years. We have four years of residency training. Um, we can perform lots of procedures like C-sections, operative vaginal deliveries, um, Midwives, um, there, there are different, slightly different flavors of, of midwives. Most of those associated with a hospital are certified nurse midwives, um, and they also have medical training. Many of them um, are, are nurses or have a bachelor's in nursing, and then they do graduate training um, in midwifery. So, so they're also medically trained. Um, they they aren't able to do procedures, so they wouldn't be able to do a C-section. Um, they wouldn't do a, an operative vaginal delivery like forceps or a vacuum. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they tend to be a little bit more hands-off in general as far as um, cutting episiotomies, and we don't do that routinely either, but they're just, you know, <laughs> just a, a, little, um, a little more um, holistic and Mm -hmm. um, then you might then you might have with an obstetrician. Um, a doula is not medically trained. Um, they're more mm -hmm. of a support person. Um, for okay. some of them are support people before um, before delivery. Some are during delivery, and there are even doulas for after you go home and and a support person for taking care of the baby at home. Um, they do have mm -hmm. many of them have some minimal training, um, but they don't have any specific medical training. Mm -hmm. Well, do you have any rule of thumb for, for making these choices? I mean, there's a lot of options out there. I, I think people hear a lot of information from friends, family, you know, social media, internet, Instagram. Um, yep. I mean, I mean, there, you probably obviously have some bias in this area. I know that we probably all have some bias because we are all trained as medical doctors as well. But what are your thoughts? Right. Yeah. Oh, and I, I also want don't want to leave out our family medicine friends and colleagues. Yes, um, absolutely. Some of our, um, we have several in our practice that um, they, um, they deliver babies, they, they are in labor and delivery um, with their patients. Um, uh -huh. So, you know, I, I, I think it really depends on, primarily on whether or not you're a high-risk patient. So um, uh -huh. patients who have medical complications, um, you know, it can be anything from um, severe autoimmune disease, um, even to gestational diabetes with, um, that requires insulin. Those are, are pregnancies that are going to be taken care of by, a, um, by an obstetrician usually. Um, mm -hmm. Low-risk pregnancies are going to be taken care of by, oftentimes by midwives if that's what you choose. Mm -hmm. um, the family medicine doctors are great for continuity. Um, mm -hmm. And so if your children are seeing a family medicine doctor and you're seeing that doctor and he or she is also um, providing obstetrical services and you're, you're a lower risk pregnancy, those are great mm -hmm. people. And um, I know mm -hmm. my colleagues here at, at Mayo Rochester, um, they will come and sit in labor and delivery while they're while their patient is laboring and um, mm -hmm. they're very attentive. And I think that's probably mm -hmm. one of the wonderful advantages of going with a family medicine doctor. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I did like a rural rotation in medical school where, um, you know, a lot of the family med doctors, you know, they did all of the prenatal care, they did the deliveries, and then they got to see the baby, you know, for the rest of their lives. And it was just such a beautiful moment to, you know, meet your patient at, at, at birth, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think it is also, I'm really glad you brought up the family medicine, um, providers who do obstetrical care as well. So 
I mentioned birth plans, um, and I have a lot of thoughts on birth plans. <laughs> I personally didn't have one because my experience in residency taught me that uh, it seemed like everyone who had really, really detailed birth plans, like I was gonna, you know, have certain essential oils, and then I was gonna walk, and then I was gonna do this, and I was gonna do that, and there was gonna be no interventions, and there was gonna be no pain meds. Those were the ones that always went wrong. And granted, as a pediatrician um, and a pediatric resident, we were only called to deliveries where there was concerns for the baby, right? And they wanted us to be present to be able to offer the baby um, any type of assistance after birth with breathing or other things. And so I felt like, okay, if I'm gonna do that and have all these expectations, I'm guaranteed that something's gonna go wrong. Because I feel like in medicine, there's, a, there's just like this rule of thumb, like, if you're in medicine, everything's gonna go wrong for you, so you kind of expect that. Um, so I didn't have a birth plan. I told my sister she couldn't have a birth plan. The only birth plan is healthy mom, healthy baby, and that's what I like. I told my um, my midwives, that's who I went with. Um, so Napuni, do you have a birth plan? Um, what are your thoughts on this? And then I really wanna hear what Dr. Wick's thoughts are on birth plans, and if she sees the same pattern that I saw in residency. Yeah, so I have like gone from, from both extremes when it comes to, to birth plans. In many ways, I think my natural tendency is, yes, I want to write out a plan. I want to be able to plan exactly how this is going to go. Right. But for the same reasons that you just said, I know that you can write down as much as you want, but what's going to happen is going to happen. And so I don't have a birth plan. I haven't written one yet. Um, and then when I think of birth plans, I guess I kind of think about uh, maybe not the most important stuff that you may want to have in there, and I'm interested to hear Dr. Wick's perspective on that, because when I imagine a birth plan, and maybe it's the portrayal that we see on TV or in movies, but I'm thinking about people specifying like what kind of music they want playing as the baby's being born, mm -hmm. or what the lighting is going to be like in the room. Um, and those things don't, don't really matter to me. As you said, healthy mom, healthy baby, I think is the, the outcome that I want afterwards. Um, but I also want to make sure that we've thought through some of the different decisions that we're going to have to make in advance, because I can imagine trying to make those decisions when you're in pain or actively mm -hmm. in labor is not easy. And so I do want to feel like I have prepared adequately. So I'm interested to hear Dr. Wick's perspective. What do you think about birth plans? Should we write them down? And what aspects of the delivery do you think are, are worth kind of thinking about in advance or having uh, included in your birth plan? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I, I do echo Angie's, um, <laughs> Angie's <laughs> thoughts where it seems like the most detailed, um, well-laid-out birth plans oftentimes don't, don't go as planned. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's important to, to go through and think about it. Um, we okay. actually, in our practice, have a little booklet that we hand out to patients, um, and it just has you think about different things that you might not have thought about, like, you know, are there different kinds of anesthesia? Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, who do I want in the room when the baby is there? And, um, you know, what, what, what do I want after the baby is delivered? And you mentioned cord clamping. So, so all, I think all those things are important to think about and, and just being flexible. Um, and if, if everything doesn't go according to plan, if, you know, you end up with needing to have a cesarean for whatever reason, um, that, that that's okay. It, it might not have been a, what you had planned for, but, um, but things can change really quickly in, in labor and delivery. Um, but having said that, I think it's, it is important to think through um, the decisions and, and it's good to think through those things ahead of time rather than, oh, right at the time when you need to make a decision. 
Mm -hmm. So yeah, and, I'm glad you brought that up because it's not just all about like, um, you know, the, the music and stuff like that, but those are like, I, and I don't mean to like poo poo birth plans because I, I had one too, right? I wanted to know what my pain, how it was going to be controlled. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I, 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 my other things were, you know, where did I want the baby after birth? Did they want to come up mm -hmm. on me and that kind of stuff if it was possible. So I'm glad you, yeah. you mentioned those, those really important aspects. And even, even things like cutting the cord, um, in one of vaginal delivery will often let the dad cut the cord and some dads are like, no, I'm not <laughs> doing that. Um, it's a lot so, different than what they think it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so even, even, um, what seems like a relatively small decision, those are, it's good to think about those ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned delayed cord clamping. Can we come, um, let's come back to talk about that because I don't necessarily know if that's something a lot of people are aware of. And um, as a pediatrician, um, I, I like have looked at the research about this and developmental outcomes and just overall kind of outcomes with infants, both that are term and healthy and preterm and healthy. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of delayed cord clamping and, but also recognizing there's times where we can't do delayed cord clamping because the health and of the safety of the baby are going to be at risk. Yeah, I, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the initial studies came out of preterm babies where they saw a lot exactly. of benefit to delayed mm -hmm. cord clamping. And, and there'd been some controversy about um, should, we, should we do this in a term healthy baby? Um, and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists now is saying, yes, um, we should mm -hmm. delay cord clamping for 30 to 60 seconds after the baby's delivered because it helps to increase the hemoglobin and the iron levels. Um, and that may help developmental outcomes. So, so we are routinely trying to do that in both our vaginal deliveries and our C-sections. Um, so yeah, we are doing that. Um, beyond a minute, it, you know, sometimes a lot of patients say, I want to, I want to delay cord clamping until the placenta starts to loosen. And um, there's really not a huge benefit in, in doing much delay beyond a minute. The, the highest volume is, is really being transferred to the baby in that, in that first minute. Um, but like you mentioned, Angie, there are times when we might not be able to do that. If, um, for example, if the baby had a fetal heart rate tracing that was concerning and um, we want to get the baby to our pediatrics colleagues right away, or if we're worried about meconium aspiration, um, or um, we're worried about mom's bleeding a lot, we think that uh, there's something going on with the placenta, there's a postpartum hemorrhage, um, and we need to manage that end part of labor, that third stage of labor, then we might hand off the baby a little bit more quickly than, um, than if uh, everything's going pretty smoothly. Mm -hmm. So have you started to think about like your pain, um, like management and maybe like what, what are the options or what you want ideally to look like during delivery? Yeah. So this, I guess, uh, kind of goes back to why I haven't really put together a birth plan yet. So, um, during, uh, our pregnancy, uh, we found out pretty early on that there were a couple of things that make it a bit difficult to know right now whether I might end up needing a C-section or whether we'll be going to try for a vaginal delivery. So one thing that was noticed was that I had a low-lying placenta. So the placenta is kind of low and right near uh, the cervix, which is where the baby would come out from. And obviously that can result in some complications during delivery. 
And then I was also noted actually on our very first um, ultrasound to have quite a large fibroid, which is kind of a benign uh, mass uh, in my uterus um, that is putting some pressure or displacing the cervix a bit as well. So the combination of those two things, we've been kind of following along the course of the pregnancy with ultrasounds um, to help decide whether um, a planned C-section might be the way to go or whether um, the risk is uh, low enough that we can attempt to deliver the baby vaginally. And so um, we're still kind of um, waiting for uh, final decisions on that based on how things go over the next few weeks. Um, and so uh, in terms of, of pain control, then I've kind of thought about both scenarios and, and possibilities. And so I know one of the, the main uh, pain control strategies that is offered is an epidural. Uh, Angie, did you have one for your delivery? Oh, for sure. Yes, yes. No, no. Like, I basically got the epidural probably before I was supposed to get the epidural, but I will say <laughs> I worked in labor with both my babies, um, and I worked almost full days in labor with both of them and went home, and the first one I delivered about mm, 12 hours after going home, and the second one I delivered like only four hours after going home. So basically got home kept calling my husband and saying, where are you? I need my epidural. Let's get to the hospital. <laughs> um, I don't know. But I guess my experience was like watching, um, watching a lot of these deliveries. It seemed like the delivery was more controlled. And this is probably my anecdotal experience. It seemed like the delivery was more controlled with an epidural and everyone seemed to like be calmer. Um, even though most deliveries are a little bit chaos and I think people need to be prepared for that. And I, I just wanted to have a little bit calmer experience. And I thought if there's anything that can make me less likely to tear, um, then I will definitely have an epidural. So yeah, epidurals and, and they were blissful. So yes. Yeah. Great. Maybe Dr. Wick, uh, can you explain a bit about what an epidural is and are there any downsides to getting one? Cause that was something I was interested in. Mm -hmm a bit more about yeah so um an epidural is uh, um, medication that's put around the the spinal column and helps to kind of give you numbness to the not complete numbness but um quite a bit of numbness to the um below the waist and so you get a lot of relief and comfort um our anesthesia colleagues are great at at trying to um to get the, the epidural or the spinal just right so that um, when it comes time to push, you're, you're able to have enough sensation to push. Um, and it, for a lot of women, it, it's a, it can be a game changer. And mm -hmm. um, Angie, I think you're right. It, it, everybody's just, there seems to be a, a, a more of a level of calm, you know, especially yeah. if there has to be some kind of an intervention like a vacuum mm -hmm. delivery or forceps. Um, mm -hmm. And moms are typically calmer because they're not in so much pain and they might not be screaming and yelling and and they sometimes they're able to listen better too if you know if there's something going on and we need to deliver quickly yes. um if mom's in a lot of pain and screaming sometimes yeah. she can't focus on what the team right. is asking her to do so yeah i'm i'm biased yeah. but <laughs> yeah you know i'm biased too because like i said both of my kids deliveries like they were really naughty and we had like bad heart rates and category two tracings and all kinds of stuff where like we had to get them out very, very quickly or we were going to be going to an alpha section. And um, I just remember, you know, how you said like they needed to focus on directions. With my second child, it was 
push, breathe, and then push again, you can't stop pushing. You're just gonna push straight. We're not waiting for contractions. So like, mm -hmm. I don't think I could have done that without, without my epidural. So, um, but I'm biased and everyone is gonna make the right choice for mm -hmm. them. That was the right choice for me. So I'm very happy I did it. There, so there are I've, other options. Oh, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was just gonna say there there are other options. Um, you know, some people like to get up and move around and be on a ball mm -hmm. or in a rocking chair. Um, massage, sometimes massage is a great thing for people. Um, mm -hmm. Getting in the shower. Um, with my second um, delivery, I, I was in the shower for probably over an hour and it was mm -hmm. a huge relief to just sit mm -hmm. in there and feel the water. Um, in our labor and delivery unit, we have a couple of um, laboring tubs or bigger tubs where um, moms can sit in the tub and, and that can be a huge relief. Um, mm -hmm. We have nitrous oxide um, that, that patients can use too. So um, lots of different options. Our, our midwife uh, team, midwifery team, um, we'll use little um, bubbles that they'll put underneath, water bubbles will put underneath the skin, just a, a, some, just under the skin injection, and, and sometimes that gives, they call them water papules, and sometimes that gives people relief too. Are you thinking about getting pregnant, or maybe you're a current mom-to-be, or you're like myself and you're in the midst of raising kids, and you're looking for practical, evidence-based advice from Mayo Clinic experts? Mayo Clinic Press has got you covered. We have a series of four books starting from Fertility and Conception to Guide to a Healthy Pregnancy, Guide to Your Baby's First Years, and the last book in this series, the one I was the medical editor of, Guide to Raising a Healthy Child. You can find these amazing books from Mayo Clinic Press wherever books are sold or on the Mayo Clinic Press website. I've heard that there's kind of a bit of time sensitivity, so I've heard of people being kind of too too late to get an epidural. What does that refer to and kind of what are the um, things that you look for to decide that it's too late? Yeah, it's oftentimes it's not too late um, unless somebody is pushing actively and and you're seeing the baby is really moving with the pushes it it's probably that's probably too late then it just push the baby and get it out and be done <laughs> um but you know even even for a patient who's at nine centimeters if it's a, um, a first time mom um oftentimes there's still adequate time for anesthesia to get in and and get the epidural placed or a spinal placed um it, you know, sometimes people worry about getting um, getting the epidural too early. Um, I I think if if somebody is in labor and delivery and the plan is for delivery, um, and they're super uncomfortable, then it's fine to go ahead, even if they're um, even if they're not very dilated. It, it's there's not really a, a cutoff um, either way. Mm -hmm. It 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 really is situational, and, and mm -hmm. each situation's a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. What about, you know, there's, there used to be, at least when I was um, in training, concerns that like getting an epidural would increase your likelihood of like needing a cesarean section or like prolong your labor. Um, is there been some, any research, um, I mean, in the past 10, 12 years since I've last been a resident um, that can shed some more light on this? Yeah, so it doesn't increase C-section rate. 
Um, it, it can make the labor a little bit longer, especially if, if the epidural is um, really dense, meaning that you don't have a lot of feeling um, in, in your legs or um, in, the, in your bottom area. Um, so when it comes mm -hmm. time to push, you're, you're pushing initially might not um, be doing a whole lot just because you can't feel, you don't have that sensation. Um, so the, the labor could be a little bit longer, um, but other than that, um, it's, there aren't any concerns. Have there been any studies that have shown uh, any increased risk for the babies related to different methods of pain control? No. Uh, well, let me let me go back. So f with um, with an epidural, there aren't really any risks to the baby. Um, we tend to avoid narcotic IV narcotic pain medications um, mm -hmm. in especially in the second stage of labor where moms are pushing, um, because we know that those medications cross the placenta and and sometimes um, the babies can be a little bit sleepy um, if mom has had a lot of narcotic pain medications. And um, Angie, I'm sure you've probably had some experiences dealing with that mm -hmm. situation, taking yep, care of yep. those babies. Um, babies that don't want to breathe, are, that doesn't go well. So yeah, we like yeah. it when they breathe after they're born, so. Yeah, we do too. <laughs> <laughs> what about, um, so you mentioned some of like the complementary um, like medicine that the midwifery um, team does with the like water bubbles. Are there any other complementary or alternative medicines that can be really beneficial during labor? I know I'd mentioned like essential oils earlier. Yeah. Is that helpful? Like there's probably so many things I haven't even heard of. Yeah, um, some people like the essential oils or, you know, scents in the room. Um, massage is, is a really um, a nice way for some people to go. Um, bouncing on a birthing ball uh, can be really helpful. Um, sometimes just taking different positions, you know, squatting or um, moving around the room. Those are, those are ways that, that people deal with, with pain. Um, a couple times we've had patients use hypnobirthing. I, I don't know a lot about that, um, but we've had some people get through labor with hypnobirthing and they are listening to, to tapes. I, I certainly don't have expertise and have not, not, not done a lot of reading, <laughs> um, but that's an option that I've seen some patients use. Well, like these are, I think, are really good medical details to help um, Nipuni kind of think about how she's gonna approach pain control um, during her labor. But I wanna shift gears um, and maybe talk about a little bit more, maybe more practical advice. Um, so what should Napuni have packed in her go bag? Um, you know, all of a sudden, we, we sometimes we think about like labor being like super quick and having to get to the hospital. Most of the time with your first baby, it's not like that, right? Um, right. But still, like having something packed is, is, is probably a good idea because you don't want to end up not having the things you need when you get to the hospital. So what do you recommend? Yeah, a lot of things we actually have in the hospital. So okay. um, we have lovely mesh underwear. Um, Ooh, that you lovely. You Excellent. might want to consider it. So um, birthing and postpartum is messy. There are fluids. <laughs> coming from everywhere. <laughs> um, yes. you're, you've got bleeding, you might have um, milk leaking, um, you might mm -hmm. be sweating a lot. So yep. don't bring your best, fanciest stuff. Um, we have mm -hmm. their gowns, their nursing gowns, you can wear those. I would suggest a bathrobe 
um, mm. or you know something for moving around out in the hall if you're mm -hmm. if you're walking around. And of course, we've had less of that with COVID. We aren't mm -hmm. encouraging a lot of walking around in the halls. Um, mm -hmm. Slippers, um, hospital floors are, are not super clean. So some slippers or flip-flops or um, you know something to get your feet into and out of quickly. Um, we have kind of the basics of um, things that, you know, toothpaste and those kinds of things. But if there are special things, if you want makeup or special shampoo, um, bring mm -hmm. bring your own toiletries, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, that might be something that, and, and that sometimes women find that comforting too, to have the things that they have at home in their, in mm -hmm. their bathroom. Um, you might want to bring a nursing bra um, mm -hmm. and also the um, the shields for your nursing bra, those are things that um, you might want to bring along. Um, as far as for the baby, um, really all you need is that going home outfit because while the baby's in the hospital, um, the, the hospital usually will have onesies and they'll swaddle the baby and their diapers and there's formula and um, donor breast milk and so all those all those things are available. Pumps, breast pumps are um, available in the hospital, mm -hmm. um, and obviously you have to have a car seat. You can't you can't leave without yes. the baby's car seat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. we're in Minnesota, and that you know that is a state law that we have to um, like see the see the car seat before the baby can leave the hospital. And different states are going to be different, but you know obviously think yeah. about getting a car seat because you're going to have to get your baby home some way unless. Maybe you're lucky enough to live within walking distance um, and you're feeling up to it after delivery. But remember, you might not feel up to walking home after delivery. So yeah. definitely. Oh, I think another it, thing, um, food and snacks. Um, yes. So depending upon the hospital that you're at, um, the the cafeteria might not be open all night. And I know with um, COVID, we used to let delivery people before COVID into the hospital. So people would come in with pizzas and whatever, and, and we're not doing that now. So I think it, it's more important to make sure you've got some snacks. Usually, um, usually the labor and delivery and postpartum area will have some basics like, you know, soup and oatmeal and that kind of thing. But uh -huh. it's okay to bring your own snacks too. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's something you haven't been able to have during pregnancy and yes. you've been craving it the whole time, like treat yourself, <laughs> plan ahead, yeah. have mm -hmm. that, or have somebody bring it to you. <laughs> um, get your sushi uh, uh, after <laughs> delivery. <laughs> yes. Did you have a special post-delivery meal, Angie? Or <sighs> no, I didn't. And I, you know, everyone talked about like how hungry they were and I just like wasn't hungry. I had like no appetite. And I think it was just like from not sleeping for 72 hours probably was the reason why I wasn't like ready to eat. But, um, but you know, I would add one thing. And if you're planning on, on nursing or breastfeeding, if you have purchased like a, like a breastfeeding pillow or like support oh, sort right. of thing before, yes. um, ours was, I think like I can't remember, maybe it was a boppy or something like that. Mm -hmm. Oh no, I think mine was like my breast friend or something that I had. Um, I think that's a game changer because um, trying to nurse with like the hospital pillows is really, really hard. And you need like octopus arms to be able to like hold the baby in the right <laughs> position. And so anything you can do to support that because they just like flail all over and pull their heads off like 95 times while you're trying to get them to latch. So anything you can do to support that I think would be like really helpful. Um, I, I, had, I packed some clothes because um, that made me feel more like a human being after I gave birth to, to put on um, some clothes instead of like a hospital gown because I'm, I'm always freezing and hospitals are really, really cold. Um, so I felt warmer. So, yeah. Some I know I've been looking at, so there's some great 
pregnancy apps out there so I've been looking through and now they're kind of starting to suggest the list of things to pack and one of the things they were saying was don't forget to pack stuff for your partner or whoever's gonna be be with you as well because ah! they will also need to yeah. stay comfortable yeah I didn't do that so. I was already giving birth I figured he can do that so yeah, yeah. <laughs> the guys have to think of something right <laughs> um, but I will add my husband almost list, missed the birth of our first child um, because we had no one to take care of our dog. Um, and so I sent <laughs> yes. him home to let the dog out. Um, and so for your fur babies and for your, if you have real babies at home too, think about like who's gonna be taking care of them um, mm -hmm. when you're laboring. Um, and so your partner doesn't miss the delivery of your child like ours, Mike Fine almost did, so. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, a lot of a lot of our patients have, they already have fur babies, um, mm -hmm. so they're gonna need care while you're in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, thanks, Dr. Work, for joining us today. I think this was a, a great discussion, um, and you can join us for more episodes of our pregnancy podcast. Um, in episode six, Dr. Wick is gonna join us again, and we are going to go beyond delivery preparation, and we're going to get into the nitty gritty details that no one tells you about. Um, with topics including vaginal delivery, tearing, episiotomies, um, and also, I think most important, what your partner should not do if they don't want to get their head ripped off during <laughs> delivery. Um, we're also going <laughs> to go over questions including what happens um, when a vaginal delivery isn't going well in a and maybe a C-section is on your horizon. And is a C-section really a big deal? Because I think sometimes there's that idea that it's just gonna be easy peasy and you're gonna walk out and it's no big deal. Um, and then also most importantly, when I put on my pediatrician hat, I want you to think about what type of screening tests should you be thinking about for your newborn after delivery, as we strongly recommend all of those. Thanks everyone for joining today. Make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes by subscribing and following along on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode and you want other moms out there to hear this valuable information, make sure that you leave a review wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.